Good evening and welcome to The Midnight Owl. I am your host, Tim. The Midnight Owl is a proud member of the Not After 30 podcast network. This podcast is meant to be an entertainment podcast. This episode is written by Kat and tailored by me, your humble host, who wishes he could remember half his million dollar ideas sober. This episode is about a frustratingly stupid capitalist tactic known as razor and blades economics. Growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. Edward Abbey The superior man understands what is right. The inferior man understands what will sell. Confucius Alright dear listener, get ready to be irritated. That's how this entire episode was put together. To piss you off. This episode is an angsty letter of complaint about the capitalist system in which we are enslaved. How many of you have gone out and purchased a warranty for a high-end piece of equipment? Maybe with some kind of electronic, like a computer. But for the sake of this argument, let's say it's a washing machine. Maybe you've even gone out and done your homework. And you've looked at the brand names and the purchase price. But none of that matters, since... Many of the reviews you've looked at online are bought and paid for. It's not a conspiracy, folks. Never trust someone who makes their living reviewing a product. They make their living off of hand-waving the failings of the company they're reviewing by trying to convince you to purchase their garbage. I've been taught this lesson, but never learned it. We all accept that it's going to break two months after the warranty is up. The most sympathy you can expect from anyone is, oh yeah, they don't build them like they used to. Or the equally unhelpful bullshit of, yeah, things are designed to break now so you have to go out and buy a new one. I wouldn't doubt that absolutely every industry has labs that test the durability of their product so they know what the machine's general runtime before failure is. Then you can use cheap enough parts that are going to make that benchmark, and you can remain competitive cost-wise. You don't want to make a thing that's going to last forever, because people would rather get a good deal. (sighs) You know what, and it's either that, or that's how the rich stay rich. They can afford the brand that will stand the test of time. Well, we all have to settle for something we know is going to break thereby dooming us to repair costs and then eventually purchasing another version of that shitty machine that's going to fucking break. On that note, why are cars differently priced for everyone that walks through the door? A car is a necessity for my life. My intellectual prowess falls way fucking short of being able to pay the bills with my brilliant take on nonsense working from home. So... I need that car to get to and from work, so I can spend my limited amount of time that I have on this magnificent ball traveling at unimaginable speeds through the solar system, around a sun, screaming through space in a universe both vast beyond our comprehension and older than any reasonable person could understand because that's part of some kind of social contract I never signed. I give time out of what little I have on this majestic wonder and work to earn money for things. Food, shelter, bills, entertainment. Part of the money I earn by sacrificing my fleeting time to the machine for those things is forfeit to the governmental ruling body to maintain the infrastructure for everything else. They call it taxes. I have heard it referred to as extortion. And here I remain until the day I can retire, lottery winning notwithstanding. But back to my point, why does a price vary? All I want is a reliable car, but I need to know how to haggle to save thousands. Sure, I get that the add-ons when buying a car could be argued by someone cold, calculating, and unfeeling are a luxury that only a privileged few can afford. But I say, food, water, shelter... Bluetooth, and butt warmers. These are necessities to a human life. I think it might actually be in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's pretty much science, but 
how can people get away with charging random fucking prices based on whether or not you know how to dick around with the person behind the other side of the desk? They get away with it because all of that is just accepted. Wouldn't it be great if a car company made an economy car with a design they kept for 5 or 10 years, and it was just a matter of going to a warehouse and selecting one off the rack when it was time to buy a new one? Where the price is the price is the price. During the period you're selling the first design, make the design for the next decade. And you know what? Hell, put it online and have delivery to the door just cost a little bit extra. You throw in a couple of hubs for their brand-specific garages, and you have a means for everyone tired of playing games with car salesmen, pretending to give a shit about the difference between a 2019 Hyundai and a 2020 Hyundai. <laughs> Forget about that. What about the insurance industry? They're a bunch of insane math geniuses with a societal dislike on the level of a sociopath hunting for its next victim. They assign probability and payouts with kilometers of rules and regulations that allow them to steal people's money for decades and then not pay them out on their worst day of their lives because at the end of the day to them, it's just business. Did you know men and women pay different premiums for car insurance? Even the color of your car plays a factor. If I came up to your door, knocked, and when you open it, I said something like, I don't know, what a lovely home you have. Let's sit down and have a chat. It would be a shame if something were to happen here. Like a fire, maybe a flood. Accidents happen all of the time. You should give me your money. You know, for protection. Oh, you don't want to? Well, if you don't purchase insurance, you can't hold your mortgage. So I'll ask politely again. Do you want insurance? It's organized crime in a business suit. Don't even get me started on airlines double booking flights and then shrugging their shoulders at people like it's not their fault when seats aren't available. Not irritated yet? Let's talk about a marketing corporate structure that we have all dealt with. We all know what it is, even if we never knew the name before today. May I introduce you to two-part pricing, aka Razor and Blades Economics. Razor and Blades Economics is the marketing strategy of slamming your shin off the corner of a coffee table as you try to sneak to the washroom in the middle of the night for a piss without turning on any of the lights. You know that it's there. You might not get trapped in it for a few months or years. But sooner or later, you're going to slam your dummy shin off the corner of the table, and you have no one to blame but yourself. All you can do is just brace yourself for the angry expressions of displeasure. What is razor and blades economics? We're talking about the capitalist custom by which you purchase an item, a device, a piece of equipment, or access to an experience. And guess what? It's really reasonably priced even more affordable when on sale. However, guess what else? And all for the low, low price you found it for. It's entirely fucking useless to you. Unless you purchase a key component. And that key component never goes on sale and costs exponentially more than the item, device, or piece of equipment you just bought. This is the two-part pricing tactic. A discounted cost to enroll yourself in exploitation as a source of reoccurring revenue once you've bought into a brand. It's like a subscription to a product. Instead of having a highly engineered item that works better and is a one-time purchase, you're now required to get the refills to allow that product to work from that company. March 2020. Walmart is offering a Gillette Fusion 5 razor handle with one blade refill and a razor stand for $12.97 Canadian. For a four-pack of ProGlide refill blades for the Fusion 5, you're going to pay $16.98. They make more money once you're on the hook, so the hook is alluringly inexpensive. You make a cost commitment to a brand when participating in the consumer side of the two-part pricing. As any drug dealer would tell you, the first hit is always free. This system is everywhere, man. Like, think about e-readers like the Kindle. 
you've just purchased this device because you want to humble brag your friends that you're not just wasting your time in front of Netflix anymore. You're a reader. Truth is, you own a pricey paperweight unless you pay to purchase ebooks. Limited to the library options licensed for the software specifically formatted to the Kindle brand devices. It's akin to paying for a library card, but then also paying per library book you borrow. Microsoft makes no money on the sale of its Xbox One game console, even though they sell them at $499. The parts in it are more expensive. But Microsoft gets about $7 out of each $60 video game sale. The video game console you choose will determine what games you can purchase to play based on what digital formats are compatible with the technology in your console. So choose wisely if you're chasing exclusive titles. In recent years, they've even gotten more devious, coming out with these new consoles that are not backwards compatible. So those cheap games people resell on Facebook Marketplace or in pawn shops? Useless. Most games now need updates over the internet to get their full content because the physical discs are manufactured before the game is even finished. 90% of the games are online, only even if they're a single-player campaign. It doesn't make sense. You want to play online? That requires a subscription, which is only $9.99 a month for the use of the PlayStation Plus or Xbox Live access. You pay for the console, you pay for the game, and then you pay for the right to play it online. And if you're playing in the truly broken system of EA games, $70 for the game, $60 for a season's pass, so you have access to the new maps as they come available every couple of months. And that doesn't even cover everything, because if you want to stay competitive with the little brats as they get off the school bus, they have nothing else in their lives to distract them, so they're just there to destroy your tiny sliver of dignity as a gamer. If you want to stay competitive with those little shits, you better get involved in their microtransaction system of buying loot crates that give you a percentage chance of winning the new guns. I'll be honest, one of the few godsends of having a night shift schedule is being able to jump on at 6am where it can compete with the other rejects of society. I have learned my lesson about playing during long weekends or PA days. Oh dear god, with school cancelled in Canada for the year, I'm pretty much fucked. The console companies are laughing because the $7 they would have made on a physical copy is no longer their main source of revenue. They're convincing people to purchase online, cutting down not only on production, packaging, and transportation of materials, but the storefronts and workers needed to sell the games are no longer necessary. <sighs> Hopefully lessons are learned from this and like the satellite thing. Buy satellite programming and then you have to pay for extra channels. Netflix, Amazon Prime, you know, all these different subscription models when all we wanted was one price for everything. Come on, streaming companies, get together, figure it out. And it's not just for products, but like think about the experiences that you have to pay once to get in and once for everything else. If you've ever paid a cover fee to get into a bar or a club... It's highly unlikely the ink blotch pressed into your hand served as an all-access pass to an open bar. You're going to have to go in and pay again, and overpay if you'd like to participate in the adult beverages. And then the next morning, you wake up with a stamp from your hand smeared across your cheek, marking you as nothing more than a member of the herd. If the clubs are not your scene, you've likely experienced something similar at a fair or theme park. You paid for admission. Then you paid for tickets to participate in the activities. You know, you're paying for rides, you're paying for food trucks. You know, the only thing that you could do if you didn't want to pay once you're in is go on a sightseeing walk. Check out all the people watching opportunities there, but who's going to pay just for that? You know, on the bright side compared to a bar, when you return home from the fair or theme park, you're probably more likely sober and have enough common sense to wash your hands, so less likely that you're going to wake up with the participation stamp stained on your face. I'm going to pause here. 
because that's Kat's recollection of fairs. And I don't want to be argumentative because it's probably true. But in a moment of honesty, I have to say I don't think I've witnessed a rodeo, lawnmower race, demolition derby, or tractor pull sober since I was about 14. Fat chance that will ever change. Pre-drink at home, get high behind the arena or curling club, sneak past the gate with yesterday's wristband hoping they didn't change colors, and then you make your way to the beer tent where hopefully a drunk relative feels generous enough to share some of their drink tickets with you. And then all you have to do is occasionally dip back to the parking lot, look for the book bag you left there full of pre-made drinks, and try not to get so drunk you puke on anybody. Mistakes have been made, lessons have been learned. But God, I miss fairs. Maybe when all the chaos in this world is over, I'll go to a fair and let some carnies rob me for the sake of nostalgia. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. You want to go bowling? That's pay to play. Simple, right? Pay for the lane and throw a few balls. Not so fucking fast. You can't wear your regular shoes on the lanes because they say they're specially waxed. You must pay to rent a pair. You are paying for the privilege of someone else's nasty foot stank because the equipment required to participate in this activity is not included in the price. Why not? Well, why penalize the minority who own their own pair of bowling shoes with an expense for an add-on that the vast majority of the population will require? Please raise your hand if you have bowling shoes. Oh, neat. Maybe one in every 10,000? I don't know the stats on bowling shoe sales. I could be wrong. But I've never heard of them being a stock that anyone's rushing to invest their retirement savings into. Arguably, the answer to why not include the cost of the shoes and the cost of the game is that there's a buck to be made on the shoes as an essential piece of the puzzle. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a nominal fee to use your own shoes in the lanes, like the uncorking fee of bringing your own alcohol to a restaurant. Oh, we gotta move on. But, uh, we're moving on to something near and dear to my existence. Single-serve coffee machines. No longer must I brew a pot of coffee that is surely to be forgotten about. No longer must I buy a tub of coffee that will go stale. What am I, Abe Lincoln? I'm a man of the future. These single-serve coffee dispensers are the kind that use pods containing a measured dose of caffeine, available in assorted flavors. There's a long list of companies participating in this popular product trend. Why support local coffee shops when you can conveniently caffeinate yourself at home? We all can now have the pretentious air of the coffee snob. At the end of the day, though, you still fill the machine with water, and you press a button to boil it. But between those steps, you spare yourself the tedious task of measuring out a tablespoon of instant coffee mix. Instead, you just insert a plastic pod in which someone has already done the labor-intensive part for you. In theory, maybe sparing yourself from having to wash a spoon, although if you're adding any sugar or milk, you're going to need a spoon to mix it or measure it, so... That's pretty neat. And then to clean up after yourself, all you have to do is toss the plastic pot away because as much as you care about the environment, I mean, it's just a pod. I don't have kids, so why am I worried about their future? That's a you problem, honestly. I have to chip in on their education and medical bills through taxes, so before we get into an argument here, make a better pod or leave me alone. <sighs> Uh, <laughs> the logic of the invention aside, once you commit to one of these machines, they likely have your brand loyalty. Regardless of whether it's your sincere affinity for the product or merely the switching costs, be they financial or psychological. If I already have the Keurig at home, which is the OG of these machines, I've invested money in it. It sits on my counter, therefore it has a home within my home. I've been buying their K-cups, watching their flavor selections. I have the little tree that holds them. It's my brand. Now, Karen has the Tassimo, and I'm over for a chit-chat and a cup of joe. She names off my options for the flavors and gasp. 
<gasps> Tasmo has a butterscotch cum flavor, which Keurig does not offer. I try it, and it turns out I am all about it. I live for this flavor now. Am I really going to go out and buy a second single-serve beverage machine now? And what do I do with my old one? What about the stand I have for the pods? Maybe I try to sell it on Marketplace, have a dozen strangers ask me questions I've already answered in the post, or try to bargain me down to nothing and give it away for free. Which I might as well just give it away to someone and spare myself the hassle of stranger danger. So, now it's a total loss. Just to replace it with a machine by a different name that does the same thing. Over what? A flavor my own brand doesn't offer yet? You'd think I could ask myself, could I live without it? Or write Keurig an email stating my request. Or maybe just really enjoy a cup of it when I'm over at Karen's. Like a treat. Seems much simpler as a solution, right? Decidedly, I'm limited to the flavor selection available for the Keurig. And I'm also at their mercy if they subtly increase prices. What's a five cent increase in cost per box? Probably not even enough to notice until it happens half a dozen times. But again, two-part pricing and the associated switching costs often generate prolonged brand loyalty. <sighs> Alright folks, if I haven't made you angry yet, I'm probably about to. We're about to enter that horror show tunnel from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So I'd ask that everybody grab onto the ropes so we don't lose anybody in the rabbit hole we're about to circle. Printer and ink cartridges. A person can spend an unfathomable amount of time reading about printer technology, the science of ink, and the pricing scheme for the entire kit and caboodle, boiling the printer and ink section of the story to a manageable discussion that wouldn't require three episodes, was probably the most time-consuming part of this entire script. Who else has purchased an entirely new printer with a perfectly functional printer at home because it was more affordable to start from scratch with a new printer than replace the ink cartridges. I have done that no less than three times in my life. The sample-sized ink that comes standard with a new printer will probably suffice your needs for a while. Just bring it up, man. Whole new machine. You have essentially decided the machine at home is now garbage. You can't even give an empty printer away because anyone who can't afford to buy their own printer cannot afford the price tag on the ink to refill it. You're better off just finding a kid that enjoys disassembling stuff, tinkering with the inner workings of electronic devices. It's a working machine, but it's garbage. So give it to the little Wreck-It Ralph. You know, at the end of the day, it's really at the same level of letting a cat enjoy a Kleenex box. It is barren of any further utility. So fuck it, man. Let them play with it until it's completely destroyed, and then at least you're not going to feel so bad about it when you put it out at the end of your driveway. Chris Hoffman, writer for HowToGeek.com, makes the claim that printer ink is more expensive than a drop of fine champagne or human blood. I didn't bother to fact check it because it probably is the truth. Printers are often sold at cost or even at a loss because the manufacturer will make most of its money from the ink cartridges you buy later at a much higher profit margin. As such, the printer is termed a loss leader, an item that is sold below the cost to stimulate profitable sales. A global information provider called IHS Market disassembled a low-cost printer in an attempt to determine the actual cost of the product via reverse engineering. They chose the HP Envy 4520, an all-in-one printer, which was being recommended by Consumer Reports and selling for only $70 at this time. By tallying the price of every component, including the monochrome display, enclosure, the included cartridge, the scanning window glass, image sensor, and so on, IHS estimated the manufacturing cost of the printer to be about $120. They were selling it for $70. The cost of the parts was $120. So nearly a 60% loss to sell the printer for $70. 
HP declined to comment on the production cost to confirm whether IHS's calculation was accurate or not. Mind you, also that this cost assessment does not include research and development or post-manufacturing costs like packaging and shipping. Wing Lam, Associate Director of Cost Benchmarking at IHS Market, said that this is a classic razor and blade business model where the manufacturer sells the goods at a low price to help increase the sales of accessories where the money is actually made. You likely only need one printer. It's a one-time loss, but you will forever need ink cartridges. And not just any ink cartridges will do. It must be official ink belonging to the same manufacturer who produced the printer. This term is OEM, Original Equipment Manufacturer. Or else you might as well get your ballpoint pen out and manually recreate the document you want to print. Okay, so if you use an unofficial cartridge or refill an official cartridge, the printer may refuse to use it. Lexmark once argued in court that unofficial microchips that enable third-party ink cartridges would violate their copyright, and Lexmark has argued that creating an unofficial microchip to bypass this restriction on third-party ink would violate Lexmark's copyright and be illegal under the US DMCA. Luckily, they lost that argument. HP defended itself, saying that ink requires a specific science to pass the following tests. It has to withstand heating to 300 degrees, overcome vaporization, be accurately squirted at 30 miles per hour at a rate of 36,000 drops per second, ejaculate with precision through a nozzle one-third the size of a human hair, and dry almost instantly on paper. Granted, that is an impressive list of accomplishments. But does the claim of perfecting the art really justify the price of the masterpiece? Tom Brown, marketing manager at HP, says that they spend $1 billion annually, annually on ink research and development. Keep in mind, the total revenue for the printing division was $24 billion last year. Unless last year's $23 billion profit will be wholly reinvested in research this year, it appears that they're making a killing for which their claim to the cost of research do not support the price tag on the finished product. Eric Stowell of LD Products. Um, LD Products are available online uh, to order at ldproducts.com. Explains, just like OEM companies are advancing their ink tech, so are the aftermarket ink manufacturers. And in the same way that some OEM brands deliver better products than others, there are aftermarket brands that deliver better generic cartridges than others. Eric makes the following pitch on behalf of LD Products for the legitimacy of non-OEM ink options. Compatible cartridges from a reputable third-party manufacturer like LD Products can cut your cartridge's cost down dramatically, offering comparable print results for a much lower price. Since the resources needed to create a compatible alternative cost very little, the savings can be passed along directly to the consumer, without sacrificing much of the print quality. And how high does your print quality have to be if you're just printing words onto paper? I get the photo printers, man, but this? You know, for an example, an original Canon PGI 280XXL extra high yield black ink cartridge sells for $34.99. You can purchase an LD brand compatible version of that same cartridge for $11.99. Giving you the same number of high quality prints at a savings of about, oh, 65%. LD products offer thousands of compatible cartridges at competitive prices proving an affordable alternative for almost every printer model. Caveat emptor. Buyer beware. A phrase that's been around so long, it's in Latin. Humans suck. The fit and function may be compatible, but please note that many companies implant microchips in their ink cartridges, which may actually prevent printers from recognizing replacements produced by competitors. 
and may also enforce expiration dates to ensure customers are forced to buy fresh ink. <sighs> These microchips probably also allow them to record consumer conversations for a good gag reel at staff meetings. They can all get a kick out of how creative people's vocabulary can be when cursing out an empty ink cartridge at 2am because their kid has to finish their book report for tomorrow, and they hadn't even started it until earlier that day. That said, customer reviews are available all over the internet. Before buying, check out what other consumers are saying to determine which non-OEM products are rated as reliable and which ones to avoid. Chris Hoffman of HowToGeek.com wraps up his report on the cost of ink cartridges by concluding that, ultimately, the price of something is what people are willing to pay for it. That said, he does offer a slice of advice for saving some money in the long run. He emphasizes that you have to do your own research in advance of purchasing a printer. Rather than picking the cheapest printer, which may not correlate to the cheapest ink on the market, and in fact is very likely exactly the razor and blade trap by which the loss on the printer is more than recuperated by the cost of the ink replacements later. So instead, buy a printer based on cost margin of the ink that will be required to refill the printer. Essentially, if you can't afford the fuel to drive a Hummer, maybe think about a Kia. Focus on affordable fuel economy. The recurring long-term expense, folks. Consumer Report offers a couple defenses for the high cost of ink. Their number one defense, the engineering is complicated. Rich Sulin leads Consumer Report's printer testing program, and he says people underestimate the engineering that goes into printer ink. People don't see the science and engineering behind printing. So it's easy to understand why shoppers have such a strong reaction to plunking down $50 to $100 for little black chunks of plastic. Early printer, early printer inks were essentially a mix of food dye and water that would fade in just a few months. Companies like Epson, HP, Canon, they all had to do research in translating a dye to a pigment composition to be able to get the photographic quality everybody wanted, while also producing prints that would last. Today's inkjets have a tough job. Firing thousands of drops of ink per second representing four different colors with tremendous accuracy. And it needs to be quick drying and water smear resistant and avoid making the page curl up, while also preventing the tiny jets from clogging. Ink companies spend a lot of time to get their right blend of pigment, dye, and vehicle to be able to have a very stable small droplet for high resolution printing. All of that research and development, of course, costs a lot of money, and that's where the price comes in. Before you go getting all sympathetic, we touched on this with HP just a few minutes ago. Yes, ink is amazingly complex. It's as intricate as the female mind. We will probably never understand it. But $1 billion annually spent on R&D with a $23 billion profit in return? They're not struggling to make ends meet, folks. It's looking a lot like exploitation and inflation to me. Their second defense is that you're paying off your printer. Again, Rich Sulin, Consumer Reports Printer Testing Program Leader, suggests that people think of the original price tag of a printer more like a down payment. You're still expected to make periodic payments over the course of your ownership. In short, if you're not buying your printer brand's ink but deterring their cost by using a third-party or DIY refilled cartridge, they're not making back their money on the printer. To that I say, I don't remember signing a lease when I was in Staples trying to buy a printer. I have no pity for their machinations. Tell me this up front. Microchip technology aims to curb your creative cost-effective problem-solving options. So how might you cut down on your ink consumption? Well, we've got three suggestions here for you to circumvent the system. Number one, research and purchase compatible aftermarket ink at lower cost than your OEM ink. Number two, consider your personal printing needs. Evaluate if an alternative type of printer might suit your needs rather than the conventional all-in-one color capable printers we consider to be the standard choice. Maybe a laser printer or a reservoir printer would suit you better. Both are supposedly gentler on the ink budget. 
Laser printers can for sure be expensive. However, some black and white laser printers are arguably affordable options as they run on dry toner instead of ink. Of course, if your personal printing includes photos, laser printers are not going to be your jam as they're not renowned for quality beyond printing black letters on paper. If your needs are purely black and white documents, take a look into toner versus inkjet options. Reservoir printers are inkjet printers, but uh, you're really going to pay the price of their production. These machines are more expensive than your standard inkjet printer. However, by paying a bigger cost up front, you're purchasing an alternative printing technology that pays for itself in the long run. Why is this hidden and not common knowledge? There are alternatives to the status quo printer scheme. It is a time-consuming investigation to make a better decision than what's conveniently offered at an attractive price on most of the shelves in the electronic department of office supply stores, Best Buy. Number three, go paperless. Manage all your documents electronically if you can. A scanner is a one-time purchase that does not require component refills or replacements as part of its ability to remain operational. Feel good about the positive environmental impact of going paperless. Basically, an eco warrior now. Spare some trees, minimize your donations to the landfill. The wheels have likely begun spinning in your head considering all the products and services you use that fall into the two part pricing category. Probably compiling your own list now. And we would certainly love to hear your examples. How about I'll choose one listener that takes the time to email the bearded and bored at gmail.com email with an example and a screenshot of an iTunes review, and I'll send you, in return, a Midnight Owl patch. So, who is to blame for this infuriatingly effective economic strategy of two-part pricing? Whose house are we going to egg? That would be Mr. Razor and Blades himself, Mr. King Camp Gillette of the state of Wisconsin, U.S. of A. A man whose parents obviously had high hopes for. Giving him a name that sounds capable of defeating a small army solo. King Camp Gillette. In 1895, at the age of 40, King Camp Gillette invented the disposable safety razor blade, which would not only revolutionize shaving, but would also revolutionize the modern economy. Prior to Gillette's reimagining of razor blades, razors were much bigger blades and expensive to replace, so men sharpened their shaving blades when they were dull, rather than just tossing them out. Gillette had the idea of substituting a thin double-edged steel blade placed between two plates and held in place by a T-handle. Instead of being sharpened, the removable blade would simply be thrown away once it became dull, saving you time. BBC Business News author Tim Hadford summarizes Gillette's realization by explaining, If he devised a clever holder for the blade to keep it rigid, he could make the blade much thinner, and hence much cheaper to produce. It would be six years of development before Gillette would secure the patent for his product in 1901. King Camp Gillette had a vision, but he did not have experience in metallurgy, so he assembled a team to assist in bringing the idea to fruition. Be a couple of years more before Gillette would perfect his company's approach to mass production. In 1903, they produced only 51 razors and 168 blades. But in 1904, with the aid of fellow inventor William Nickerson, who developed a way to mass produce the blades from sheet metal, Gillette's annual output skyrocketed from 51 to 90,000 razors, and from 168 to 12,400,000 blades in 1904. That was a big year. Initially, Gillette priced both the handle and the blades at a really high cost, marketing the purchase as a novelty invention, a modern convenience, to have a sturdy handle for precision shaving. The target market would have been the wealthy man with money to spend on modern luxury items. Supposedly, the cost of the original Gillette razor blade kit was so pricey that Sears Catalog advertised it with an apology to customers, stating that they were not permitted to offer a discount on the item. 
So later on, as Gillette's patent for the disposable razors expired and competitors began producing their own versions, Gillette devised two-part pricing as a way to market his product as one of convenience and precision and affordability by selling the razor blade handle at cost or at a loss and replacement blades for a profit. This is cited as the birth of the two-part pricing system, synonymous with razor and blade economics, the title that tells its own origin story. Gillette effectively undermined the price tag on disposable razor blade kits, making it cheaper to get started with Gillette than with his competitors. Not to mention, Gillette was the OG of disposable razor blades. Would you rather buy a tried and tested product with a history on the market, now available at a lower price, or roll the dice on a competitor, new to the game, who might not have it right? We're talking about razor blades for your face, neck, and now that manscaping is a thing, even more precious areas. Arguably, Gillette had been on the cutting edge for some time. Gillette had developed brand power, so he dominated the industry. A hundred years later, his name is still synonymous with shaving. Which all begs the question. What kind of person would come up with this model? Surely, it's got to be someone from the upper class with utter disregard of those of us who toil away making our meager way through this world living paycheck to paycheck, right? He's probably the kind of man that watches A Christmas Carol and knows the sounds of Jacob Marley's chains all too well. What would have become of King Camp Gillette? Is King Gillette now a chained and tormented ghost, doomed to wander the earth forever as punishment for his greed and selfishness? Marley roamed restlessly, witnessing the hardships that others suffer, and lamented the fact that he has forever lost his chance to help them. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and of my own free will, I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? During the research for this episode, Kat made a discovery. Based on a reference link at the bottom of an article, that took us to Cornell University. Specifically, the Urban Planning Library. Why would a razor blade salesman be linked to the Urban Planning Library? I'm going to play a scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail right now. I'll come back to answer that question. Old woman! Man! Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... Well, I object to it. You automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. Oh, how'd you do? How do you do, good lady? I am Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please, feel... please, good people. I am in haste. Who lives in that castle? No one lives there. Then who is your lord? We don't have a lord. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Order? Who does he think he is? <laughs> I am your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. 
Well, how did you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they put me away! Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Did you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? In 1894, just one year prior to his invention of the disposable razor blade, Gillette published a book titled The Human Drift. This is the dedication at the beginning of The Human Drift. The thoughts herein contained are dedicated to all mankind, for to all the hope of escape from an environment of injustice, poverty, and crime is equally desirable. The Human Drift has been described as a pamphlet advocating a socialist urban utopia, a moneyless society suggested by a future self-made millionaire. In this socialist urban utopian pamphlet, Gillette lamented that our present system of competition breeds extravagance, poverty, and crime. So his vision sought to resolve those woes by ensuring equality, virtue, and happiness. In the introduction, Gillette even points out to the wealthy that see themselves as having a vested interest in keeping the current system that they would benefit just as much as a panhandler if they could only stop and think about it. And I quote, Under our present system, the wealthy are just as much slaves to circumstance as the poorest beggars. They are under a constant strain of anxiety in guarding their property and keeping their surplus invested in safe securities. Besides this, they are mostly businessmen who labor night and day from early years to old age. They produce nothing. Their only business in life is being so to manipulate property that they may absorb the wealth which is produced by the labor of others. What do they get for all this scheming which is at the expense of their fellow men? After all is said and done, they only get food, clothing, and a shelter, and means whereby to gratify their vanity and greed. Under a system of equal justice, they would get much more with less expenditure of labor and no worry or anxiety. Their food would no longer be adulterated and manufactured in filthy places. Their clothing would be better than is possible now, and their homes would be in a city free from dens of vice and foul tenements. They would no longer be surrounded by the dirt and filth of an ignorant and impoverished people and no longer afraid their lives would be attacked by some despairing crank or maniac. King Camp Gillette proposed that the whole population of North America centralize to live in one megacity he named Metropolis. I could not find any evidence that this was linked to Superman, but I also didn't find any evidence that it wasn't, so feel free to choose for yourself. Mind you, at this time, the total population of the U.S. was an estimated 60 million people, which is the population Gillette envisioned he could accommodate in skyscaping mammoth condominiums topped with glass domes to maximize the use of natural lighting. Central to the city's location is Niagara Falls. The core of the city would be built above and powered by Niagara Falls an extreme version of the high-density designs advocated by many urban theorists. Gillette praised the renewable power of the waterfalls by writing, If brought under control, Niagara is capable of keeping in continuous operation even manufacturing industry for centuries to come, and, in addition, supply all the lighting, 
facilities, run all the elevators, and furnish the power necessary for the transportation system of the great central city. Conversations of the same sort of hydrocentral societies continue today among urban theorists and idealists, with some engineers and urban planners designing hypothetical blueprints echoing Gillette's vision. For those who enjoy a visual, there are plenty of Google image results for Gillette's utopian blueprint. It'll give you a pretty good idea, but for the genuinely curious, Cornell University's Urban Planning Online Library houses excerpts from the human drift, including images of Gillette's proposed urban plan. If you type into Google human drift, the entire book will pop up as well, free to read. (sighs) Gillette proposed for a single company, the United Company, he called it, to make all of life's necessities as cost-effectively as possible. To quote the human drift, money would pass into oblivion of an ignorant age. Instead, accessibility, comfort, and all the necessities of life would be publicly owned from production to distribution. He had a genuine faith in people's ability to self-serve, removing selfishness and gluttonous greed from the social equation. What would motivate people to contribute? They would all own shares in the company. Therefore, all had an essential need to see the company survive. As grandiose as it may sound, Gillette had invested a lot of thought into the project. He had an affinity for fire brick, tile, and glass for building materials, and arguments prepared to support his choices in supplies citing durability, versatility, and aesthetic considerations. For example, here's a little excerpt from The Human Drift regarding the virtues of tile. If properly manufactured and applied, there can be no question as the durability of glazed tile for it is practically indestructible. And there is no material in the world for building purposes that can compare with tiling in its possible range of treatment, both in artistic design and coloring, as well as adaptability to assume any desired form in course of manufacturing for panels and moldings and for covering pillows, girders, etc. He even took into account the design of the city, Barring any personal vehicles and building the skyscrapers in hexagonal patterns so that dirt and filth would not make its way in. The human drift includes Gillette's plans for networking utilities, public transit, walkways, a sewage system, heating and cooling, electricity throughout the entire megacity, accessible for all. A few years of service in production, mining, or any various need would result in a lifetime of intellectual pursuits. Needless to say, these ideas were not well received. The book fell into obscurity, occasionally resurfacing in other idealist utopian works. Can you imagine a North America where there were a few megacities in various locations? You know, wherever there was renewable energy enough to sustain the company that would spring up to attain its power. Inside of these cities would be mining operations, farmland, and endless tracts of untouched nature. King Camp Gillette took a radically contrary path professionally from the socialist utopia he had proposed philosophically in 1894. Seven years into operating a successful capitalist company, 1910, Gillette still reserved at least part of his heart for his seemingly abandoned ideals as he offered former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt $1 million to work the role of president of an experimental world corporation that Gillette proposed to create in Arizona. Roosevelt declined. I'm going to repeat the Confucius quote presented at the start of this episode, as it effectively summarizes King Camp Gillette's fall from grace. From a socialist utopian philosopher to a multi-millionaire entrepreneur with a marketing strategy to change the course of capitalist economics. Confucius said, The superior man understands what is right. The inferior man understands what will sell. The question becomes, did you let go from wanting the best for all of mankind to being the best a man can get incarnate? What an appropriate slogan for his iconic, ironic company from an idealist to a heartless exploiter. That being said, 
I have been accused in my life of being hopelessly optimistic. Probably to the point of naivete. To that end, I propose an alternate ending. I do so with a dark and cynical smile. King Gillette knew the capitalist system was broken and saw a way to make the world better. Is it possible, since he was laughed out of the room for trying to tell the world how the system was arbitrary and abusive, he decided to show them that there was a better way that benefited everyone? So King Gillette played a joke on the world. Exactly the way that he said the system was broken, he was going to exploit that to show them. He came up with two-part pricing, first as an attack on the rich to teach them that just because a novelty exists does not make it a better product. When they didn't listen, he tried to show the masses. And what did he get for his efforts? He became a millionaire. You know, God has a really funny sense of humor. I'm a hands-on learner, so I appreciate an idealist finally giving a tangible display. Not just a bunch of numbers and speeches. King Gillette stood up and gave an example of how the system was broken. You know, he could have give up, laid down, died on some idealistic cross. King Gillette showed the world why the current system blows donkey nuts. 100 years later, we still haven't learned his lesson. But for a man that envisioned a legacy of creating a better world for all, maybe it'll just take a little longer to learn that lesson. As put by BBC business news author Tim Hartford, Evidently, it's easier to inspire a new model for business than a new model for society. Gillette certainly made the most of a system he could not convince to change. Himself becoming a cutthroat competitor. What is the moral of the story? I can't say for sure. If you can't beat them, join them, then beat them at their own game. Maybe it's learning a little better to recognize a strategy. Maybe it's finally driving home the point that you get what you pay for. <sighs> I, th I think that there is... I think that there is anything I should take away from this app. I'm going to save up and purchase items that are decent, as opposed to what I can afford at the time. I'm done with replacing things a couple of months into their use. In my house, there's been an ongoing argument about can openers. I feel as though purchasing a good one that would work effectively for two years is worth a $20 price tag. And not one from the dollar store that's going to last three months that we'll have to continue to repurchase because they don't work. When I get my own space, I want to get a decent set of knives. Go online, get a crock pot that'll last a decade. Decent set of pans. I'll be honest with you, I've picked out the style of couch I want, and I'm setting away money every month so I can get it one day. Wide enough for me and the dog to have an afternoon nap on, enough back support I can read without feeling like I'm sinking into a corner. No longer will I get the IKEA abominations we all get when we are starting out, and never seem to leave. I have subsisted on second-hand mismatch creations that people were probably just going to leave at the end of their driveway. Because once shit is in the house, it'll... I'll never get rid of it. I'll be buying grown-up furniture. A dresser that won't have a trick to opening a drawer without it falling out. Coffee table that doesn't have a wobble. Kitchen chair that doesn't need Allen keys to tighten it up every few weeks. Uh, if I have to go from store to store, sitting on every couch they have until I find the perfect one... I'll go six months sitting on milk crates if I have to. Maybe in that vein, I'll even invest in a straight razor. We have a resource full of tutorials, the internets, and I'm positive with not even looking that YouTube has tutorials for straight razors. Oh, maybe I'll even make the switch to a French press instead of coffee pods. Instead of crappy plastic Tupperware that melts and becomes discolored, I can get a decent set of glass ones. Maybe the lesson from this episode is that if you invest in things that last, you will end up further ahead 
with more time to pursue passions as opposed to putting out fires for what's broken now. I don't know if this is why the rich stay rich. They buy the nice thing once and not a substandard thing ten times. They wouldn't have to buy it on credit and end up paying three times the amount because of interest in the end. Maybe the point of this episode is the world isn't perfect, but there are still dreamers out there, trying. Some may have gotten sidetracked, or given up, but that spark of hope is still alive. When all seems lost, look for the dreamers. Oh, and don't forget the owl at the moon. Hoot hoot. <laughs>